Barlow, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. Donald Trump dominated the headlines over the weekend. He didn't get indicted, but he did have a big rally in Waco, Texas, which we discuss in great detail. We also analyze the primary race he's running against Ron DeSantis, who is not even declared yet. We touch on 2024 polls, the latest on the Ukraine war, and the Chinese mind control app known as TikTok. Our guest today is filmmaker Paul Rowland. He might be better known to this audience as Paul Bois, one of the most popular journalists at Breitbart, but he's also a filmmaker. He's got a new movie called Exemplum, which is available now to stream on Vimeo and Tubi. I highly recommend it. Let's get into it. had a great weekend. I had a terrific weekend. I did not have a lot of work, and that's pretty rare for me. Part of the reason why is because Mrs. Dr. Marlowe had an infinite amount of work. She was on call um, at a, a in a very difficult rotation. Those of you with anyone in medical life will know what I'm talking about. Um, I, I will not elaborate, uh, but it did involve a, a lot of kid time, and uh, that was nice. It was nice. It was different from work. I did not sit around and wait for an indictment. Uh, I figured it was not going to come. It's interesting because I've always thought Trump would be indicted, and I, I thought that you know they're going to try to arrest him. That'd be the best case scenario for his life pretty much. I don't know. It goes back to 2015, 2016, I would think, that I thought, well, they're going to figure out a way to arrest him. Um, and finally, we hear via Trump that he's going to be arrested. And then now, all of a sudden, I thought, wait a minute, maybe he won't be arrested. Now, uh, uh, my official position is they're, they're still going to do it. But I remember the feeling I had just over a week ago. It was a week ago Saturday as we are um, airing the show live, thinking that, wait a minute, they're really going to do it. This is going to be it. Stormy Daniels horse face. Horse face is going to be what gets them. And I thought that sounds so insane to me. that The former president of the United States, whose uh, main shtick at this point is telling people correctly that he's been victimized by political witch hunt after political witch hunt. That's his, his main content for what he talks about when he speaks to people. And now they're just going to do it. They're just going to arrest him over a trumped up charge from almost a decade ago that no one cares about. I, I said this on the broadcast on Thursday with Dr. Gorka, and it bears repeating for those of you not hear that interview. Um, if Trump had actually rigged the 2016 election with Vladimir Putin, then no one in the world would have been mad if he was pilloried, if he was arrested, if he was removed from office. The only thing is, is that it didn't happen. But if it did happen, of course, he would have been upset. I mean, we all knew within five minutes it didn't happen. Anyone who had read Peter Schweitzer's research prior to the Russia collusion hoax would have understood that, of course, that didn't happen. Hillary Clinton was the one in bed with the Russians, not Trump. And there's clearly a level of projection that was going on. But that said, if it was true, if all the lies were true, we would have understood the outrage. Um, if Trump had actually organized a coup against the government, 
if he had literally marshaled the people on January the 6th to try to overthrow his own government, then none of us would have been upset if he'd been impeached, if he'd been removed from office. We all would have been fine with it. We all thought, okay, we get it. You can't have coups against the government. We understand why people are upset. Now, of course, especially with the benefit of information from the last couple of weeks, we know for sure that didn't happen. That was a lie again, another hoax. But that said, if it was true, then yeah, yeah, we get it. We get the outrage. Now, this one, Trump had an NDA with a woman he had an affair with, and he may or may not have gotten one of his lawyers to pay her a relatively small sum relative to his, you know, uh, what's his net worth? Uh, seven, eight figures, whatever it is, seven figure net worth. No, I'm sorry. His net worth would be 10 figures. That's the math. So his 10-figure net worth, giving a woman a relatively small sum of money to keep her mouth shut so he doesn't ruin his marriage. Now, would any of you care one iota about that if that's what happened? If what they're going to arrest him for, allegedly, if it did happen, would any of you care? None of you would care. None of you would care. Um, I forget who had this take. I didn't mention it. I should have looked this up, but it's... Uh, someone online said it was actually romantic because he wanted to make sure Melania didn't know about it. I thought that was pretty brilliant. So um, I, I hope that was somewhat tongue-in-cheek because I'm a very anti-affair. But that said, if the affair takes place and it's with a nasty person, you want to make sure she stays quiet and you can afford to do so, uh, is there anyone who would be shocked that that was the approach Trump took? None of you. None of you would care the biggest Trump hater to the biggest Trump supporter, everyone be like, yeah, I get it. And this is what they're going to bust him on. So I'm not stunned it hasn't happened. I'm not stunned it hasn't happened. Um, Jonathan Turley, who's on Fox a lot, who is always good to check in with because he's pretty brilliant on legal stuff and is not naturally a conservative, though he's kind of been driven conservative by the woke crowd. Uh, had said that Alvin Bragg had handed Trump proof positive of Trump's long-standing narrative that this is a political persecution or prosecution. Both. Yeah, that's right in the money. So uh, I, I did not wait around. I had a feeling it wasn't going to happen. I don't know why. Total six cents. That is not going to happen. And um, uh, maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it happens during the show today. But there's just something about it that just seems very off to me. Um, and so we will see uh, my official bet is it'll happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And I'm just, I'm not positive. I wasn't positive enough to think that I'm just going to spend my whole weekend, uh, glued to the computer that said, I did tune in for Trump's rally. Um, it was in Waco and I'm curious if any of you did and what your thoughts were. I thought it was interesting. He's got a new, it's almost like a bit that he does. Um, he's figured something out, which I'm sure just really resonates with the most hardcore Trump supporters is he rattles off all of the things where he's been a victim, all the times that people have done stuff to him, all the things that are happening in his life, all the things that he's been attacked for, whether reasonable or unreasonable. He then gives his resume, all the things he did as president. Uh, many of them exaggerated. And then he talks about the audience uh, in the sense that it's all about you. So the routine is 
I've been persecuted. They've done everything to me. They've harassed me more than anyone in the world. But it's not really about me. It's about you. And I find it to be pretty funny. Um, it is, there's a lot of jokes that could be told that I could, I could give you a rundown on what I ate for dinner over the weekend, what I watched on TV, what my kids did. And then at the end, if I just say, but it's not about me, it's about you. Okay. Okay. And then that's it. That's the shit. And, and I want to know if that sings to you because that, that is it. That is the routine. And it's what we're going to see. Um, he talks constantly about himself. That that, that is the hundred uh, percent of the conversation is what is on Trump's mind. What has happened to Trump? What has Trump done in the past? What has Trump been up to? What does Trump want to do? Factors in a little bit, not a lot of going forward. Almost everything is past tense, but occasionally what Trump is going to do, and then it's all about you. It's all about you. Um, and I I I don't I think it's going to work. I do. I do think it's going to work. I think that's enough for people. I think that's all people want. Um, and this just unbelievably bizarre decision for Ron DeSantis, the only real threat to Trump in a primary to just not declare he's going to run and just let Trump absolutely torch him over and over again. He's calling him Ron DeSanctis now, which is just, it's it's very good. Ron DeSanctimonious was not good. Um, though it did put something in my brain and I'm sure yours as well, but DeSanctis is so subtly, it's subtly more clever to me. Um, Ron DeSantis doing an interview somewhere. Was it Piers Morgan, which is just unbelievable. He's doing Piers Morgan interviews. It's not Piers Morgan. One of the, one of the last people he should, he should sit down with, not to say Trump isn't a pro at sitting down with people. He shouldn't. Um, and then it was brought up that Trump may have paid off, you know, hush money to Stormy Daniels. And Ron DeSantis was very dismissive of it. Um, and he sounded incredibly sanctimonious. He really did. He sounded very sanctimonious about it. So whoever's handling him, I assume is Bush people at this point. The only explanation of why he's, you know, doing interviews with Piers Morgan and why he's hanging out with all the Bush people. Uh, it's got to be that the Bush people have co-opted the campaign at, at this point. Whatever is, is, is whatever you can say about it as a campaign or not. I mean, it's not really a campaign, it's sort of a campaign. Um, but he actually sounded sanctimonious, which is amazing because Trump does just, he's just got that knack. So those of you who are uh, very much inclined to move on from Trump, and any of you who've listened to the show over the last year and a half, two years, understand that I'm incredibly sympathetic to that. Uh, what, what's the plan? What's the plan? It's not what Ron DeSantis is doing. That's not the plan. He's just letting Trump eat him alive. And then he finally brings something up about Trump and he sounds sanctimonious about it. So donors are getting cold feet. Donors are suggesting that DeSantis should wait 2028. Um, that was what Cernovich said in the show last week, who is uh, admittedly a DeSantis guy and hopes DeSantis runs and wins. No longer hopes he runs in 2024, hopes he runs 2028. So uh, Trump kicked off the Waco rally of the weekend 20, with a um, playing the January the 6th prison choir song, which is the Pledge of Allegiance 
I think with some Trump vocals. Uh, it's quite odd. Went to number one on the charts. Any of you who haven't heard it, you have to. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. Trump said DeSanctis begged him for an endorsement with tears in his eyes. I mean, just, just it's so good. You, you have to admit, if you think Trump was a crappy president, if you think he would be a crappy president again, if you think he has no chance to win, him going up there and saying DeSanctis begged him with tears in his eyes for an endorsement, you have to admit, is unbelievably humorous. John Noldy was pointing out how humorous it is that Trump could have picked any state or any country on earth to move to. He moved to Florida and is now trashing the governor. I mean, it's just, it's the troll level is beyond expert. Now, many of you would prefer a president to just be presidential. I get it. I'm sympathetic to that. But as a news person, you can't help but chuckle and applaud when he does stuff like that. I mean, DeSantis begged me for endorsement, tears in my eyes. I mean, I'm smiling just thinking about it. But what's the DeSantis campaign doing? He's just losing weight. So he's he's losing weight. That's his plan. Is that the thing that you do? You just lose weight? Like, you don't run. You just lose weight. I'm all for losing weight. I mean, that's great. Stay in shape by all means. We have an obesity epidemic in the country. People are too heavy in general. But instead of just losing weight, why not just declare that you're running and then run? Um, Trump talked, of course, a lot about the potential indictment, said it would be prosecutorial misconduct by radical maniacs. Uh, He was calling Alvin Bragg an animal, the DA of Manhattan. White powder was mailed to Bragg's office. Um, I don't know what it was. If it was something bad, of course, I disavow any violence. Um, But it's noteworthy how... Uh, This is just clearly going to backfire if this happens. Clearly. We had a poll up at Breitbart, um, which we broke exclusively um, from Trafalgar. So, again, take it with a grain of salt. Anything Trafalgar is to be taken with a grain of salt until they prove themselves that they figured out whatever the heck they did in 2020. But they did uh, show that the majority of Americans think the charges will uh, either help Trump or have no effect. Duh. You don't need a poll to prove that. You do not need a poll to prove that. Of course, they're going to help Trump. But this has been my thought since January the 6th, since the hearings, January the 6th. Um, it is, the the plan is to get Trump to run again, which, he's, which they've done and he's done, and to be the nominee, which is almost a guarantee at this point and then to be a hobbled general election candidate. Now, this one might actually help him in a general. I don't know for sure, but I know a lot of people out there, a lot of you tuning in the radio this morning are thinking, how could we do this again? How could we do another six years at least of this one individual dominating all of American life, American politics, what we're thinking about, what we're talking about, how can we keep doing it? It sounds so exhausting. I don't want to do it. I know a lot of you are thinking exactly that. So uh, that is what they're really attempting to do here. Is they want to exhaust all of us of Trump. And I think it's having somewhat of an effect. You can see it just in terms of the way people are engaging in the news. A lot of people are really punching out on the news. 
So I have no doubt that Trump's loyalists are fired up. They're ready to help him fulfill his narrative arc where he is redeemed, comes back like Lazarus. And many of you think that um, that would be terrific. And some of you think that I, I just don't care anymore. I'm over it. I'm over it. It's been too much. And it'll be interesting to see how this all shakes out. Who's made the right calculus, the right calculations. Trump said he believed Alvin Bragg has dropped the case because they have nothing. I don't doubt that that's a possibility. But I don't know for sure. Maybe they dropped it. Maybe they haven't dropped it. I think if they drop it, be smart. Um, and the Republicans are fired up. They're saying that there's the they they want Bragg to come in testify. Jim Jordan, James Comer, Brian Steele, Republican from Wisconsin. Um, they have stated their request for testimony and documents from Bragg related to the possible forthcoming indictment of former President Trump. According to Ashley Oliver, one of our reporters, Breitbart. Three committee chairmen contended in a letter that Breitbart News got that there is a substantial federal interest in Congress probing Bragg's investigation of Trump after Bragg disputed most of their initial requests. So we'll have all that. Republicans push back. Soros funded, elected by Democrat DA. Part of why I did what you guys to protest. Like, why would you throw yourselves on the mercy of that system? Sorry, it's sad, but um, I don't regret saying that. And I'll say it again if he does get indicted. If you want the system to be fair and just, you are uh, living in a dream world. Harvard-Harris poll is Trump up 26% in a Republican primary. Uh, I, I'm dying to hear about it. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are not a fan of Donald Trump, what is the path? And are you satisfied with how Ron DeSantis is uh, doing it? Going on Piers Morgan, being sanctimonious, not actually running. And I will state, Ron DeSantis is an unbelievable governor, the best governor in the country. And I have no doubt he would be an exemplary president. I have no doubt he would enact incredible policies. I also have no doubt he would be a, as of this time, a stronger general election candidate just because the nature of Trump is that he's going to engender so much negativity, so many anti-Trump voters are going to turn out. So I'm all ears on this. But explain to me what's going on here. Because Trump's out there, he's playing the victim card, he's having a fun time trolling people, he's got the nicknames going, he's being victimized by... Soros-funded DAs. That is the narrative. Very curious because that that was uh you know it was a it was a factor of my weekend watching Trump's rally. If you watched the rally, what did you think? I thought energy-wise, Trump a little flat. Um, but some noteworthy noteworthy things. I think he had some sharp points. I thought that he's building sort of an all-star team. He's come up with a very clever mechanism to build a team which is he's demanding people endorse him now. I know this secondhand, and I know this from observation as a news person. I know this because I have friends who are powerful conservatives, and they told me Trump is just, yeah, he's just saying I need to endorse him now or else I'm, I'm, I'm screwed. So we know he's doing that. 
Um, but the other thing is, it's very clear that from the way he talks at the rallies, that he said, if you want to come speak with me at a rally, which is you know the biggest platform for any conservative in politics at this time, aside from you know maybe a show or two on Fox News primetime, um, then you got to endorse him, or else you can't be a part of it. And when he's up by twenty percent over Ron DeSantis in the polls and 40% over everyone else, it seems kind of like a no-brainer. So that that is very clever. Again, he's good at this stuff. He's really good at it. And this is why, for all of you who are ready to move on, I, I want to know the plan if there is one or if the plan is just, just got to see what happens. Because I'm not seeing a plan here. I'm seeing... A lot of people winging it and people had a long time think about this. And going on Piers Morgan, hanging out with Jeb Bush is not the plan. All right. Um, the UN has accused both Russia and Ukraine of potential war crimes. Um, they've also accused them both of summary executions, torture of, of prisoners of war. Uh, this follows. This, this charts with everything that we've anticipated. Um, it should make people who are uh, somehow convinced Putin's a good guy, which is, you know, eight of you, rethink that. And the 11 of you who think Zelensky is, you know, presiding over this super great country, um, you should rethink that too. Ukraine is a corrupt place, has been. Um, that the it just it's two parts of the world that are it's one part of the world but it's two countries that are not particularly great going at it and the policy on this region i think is going to be very central to the election it might even be the issue of the election the media is very committed to the narrative on the economy and the green stuff the energy stuff that uh, they're just not going to tell the truth about it. there's no chance so even though that might be the number one issue, I don't know if it'll rise to the number one issue with voters. Uh, we know that Ukraine stuff is going to be huge. Keep an eye on that. And even the UN is noting that Ukraine is responsible for executions, war crimes, torture. So uh, how much of your money is going to get sent there without any checks and balances whatsoever? A lot. Um, which Republican is going to emerge with the most coherent plan on it? DeSantis is already going back and forth on what he would do. Um, I'm interested to hear what Pence or Pompeo will say as the election heats up because they should be sharp on this stuff. They should get this stuff. But will it be enough to you know, get them into contention? I don't know. But uh, Ron DeSantis is all over the map on it and um, we'll hear what Trump says. We hear Trump say he's got some baggage there. I, I got a feeling Trump is going to say some good stuff on, on this as time goes on, but we'll see. Russia has pulled their ancient T-54 and T-55 tanks from storage because the war is going on for so long that they're going back to these really old school tanks. We had our big article on this at our London Bureau. Um, but you know, Russia famous for having big, impressive tanks are going way back, whereas Ukraine has access to a lot of Western-made 
really, really high quality, fresh tanks. Russia's going way back. Again, I'm just nervous what Russia does if they get desperate. All right. Um, changing gears rather abruptly. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about coronavirus. John Nolte is a big story for us over the weekend on how disinfecting things has now been added to the list of things that uh, don't stop the spread of coronavirus. So the stuff we tried, lockdowns, that didn't work because that just meant people spread the virus within their house a lot. Closing schools didn't work, same reason. We know that the masks didn't work, aside from the 13 of you who had uh, N95s perfectly fitted to your face. And we know the vaccines were mixed in their effectiveness, but we know that they certainly didn't stop the spread of the virus. So all these people who sold disinfectant, I mean, how many of you still have Lysol wipes in your house that you probably didn't need? So now studies out that, uh, that, that didn't do it. So, uh, and how many people freaked out, like putting their Amazon boxes in the garage? That was so absurd. I, I could never go there. I, I, even some people, I think some doctors came on the show and said they're like waiting a day to open their Amazon. I, I, I never did that. I mean, I, I, people might have said that here a few years ago, but I, I never did that one. Um, a teacher in Florida, we reported in 2021, got arrested for allegedly spraying a student with disinfectant. The student wasn't wearing a mask. Oh, we asked our people to do so many absurd things. The setback to the scientific community will be immeasurable. It will be forever for many people who were young adults during this virus. It will never come back from it. Simply never come back. People will go to the grave not trusting the scientific community. Also, they could sell a few more PPEs or jabs or Lysol you know, packets. Biden pressured Facebook to censor vaccine skeptics on a private on a private message service called WhatsApp, which I know many of you have, um, which is I think is encrypted messaging service. So it, it gives you the illusion that it is um, super secure, but there's a problem with it, which is it's owned by Facebook. So if you trust Facebook. On this stuff. Wow, that was that was an awful noise. Apologize for that. That was really weird. Don't stop. 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 Stop it. Okay. All right. Seems like we're okay. Magic of live radio. Um, so that is so so the Biden White House pressured Facebook censor. Uh, but the real social media giant that has been under attack on the hill this week was TikTok last half of the week. We saw some hearings from the TikTok CEO and support for a TikTok ban is growing. Hearing was very bad and people are struggling to rationalize why we would have TikTok, which is essentially Chinese mind control. Um, and there's many reasons just like TikTok. My, my biggest beef with it is it, it's not security even, even though a lot of people are concerned about security and I am too. Um, it's the rotting of the brains of young people who are addicted to it. They can't get off of it. They all think they're going to be influencers on it by, you know, posting videos of themselves, lip syncing to things. And there's many ways, many reasons to be concerned about it. 
um, the privacy issues where the CCP is getting our data, the fact that the CCP is spying on us, understanding us. We have no clue what the app is tracking when it's on our phones. And if it's not tracking anything nefarious right now, we know that future updates it's going to. All of that is very scary to me. And why this would be allowed on any phone in the U.S. government, I don't know. Why you would allow your kids to be on it is insane to me. Uh, but the main thing for me is just the brain rot. It's just total mind control. And any of you who've been on it, it is very, it's very addictive. And you can see what a waste of time it is. And when you know that China doesn't allow its people, its own people, to use it in an unlimited fashion, they have restrictions on it, then you you get it, you understand it. But if we don't ban it soon, you're already seeing articles that the TikTok itself um, is creating the American dream for people. And banning it will shut down the livelihoods of these TikTok influencers. And if it goes any further, if it's, if it's a part of our lives much longer, then um, th that argument is going to make a lot more sense. It already makes a little bit of sense now. So especially in a bad economy, we're going to, you know, eliminate a portion of it is, is resonant. So, um, wow, I'm hearing every Sirius XM studio is equipped with disinfecting wipes still. Yeah, I mean, look, it's the, a lot of people cycle in and out. There's lots of germs going around, but it's certainly not going to stop coronavirus. That is something. Um, Tom Cotton has called for the CEO of TikTok to be... Uh, deported immediately. He's just so good. He's so good in this stuff. Uh, he, in his latest book, which I don't know the name off the top of my head, but uh, Tom Cotton's latest book, which came out last year, which I read, which I highly recommend, um, he speaks and writes very well about TikTok and the threat of it. And um, I like that very much. And he called the testimony from last week disgraceful and beneath contempt. He should never be allowed to re-enter our country. Nice. Um, one TikTok executive have blamed the uh, calls for banning the platform on xenophobia. How good is that? Um, Vanessa Pappas, the chief operating officer of TikTok. It's really that people are racist. That's the main reason we don't want the CCP controlling the minds of our children and stealing our data from the government. It is that we're all just really, really racist. Also in social media news, uh, Elon Musk has offered employees stocks in Twitter, granting a value of $20 billion for the company. So his new valuation figure is less than half of what he paid for it a few months ago. It is amazing how Musk, whose wealth fluctuates up and down based on stock market, Tesla's been up for the last few months, so I'm sure he's doing okay. But it's just amazing how he just gambled $40 billion on a sort of so-so media platform. And um, he's admitting that it's worth half that. It's kind of ballsy for him to do it, don't you think? Is he for him to just say, yeah, it's $20 billion now. That's all it is, even though I paid over 40 uh, his willingness to be publicly humiliated is very high, and that's typically a, a something that is good for success. Most of the very successful people that I know have a very high threshold for public humiliation. They just don't seem to care that much. 
All right, 866-95-PATRIOT. Uh, a couple of woke things. Uh, Disney is laying off 7,000 people. Um, why would that be? I'm guessing it's going to be, my answer is wokeness. Uh, they still have a virtual monopoly on children's entertainment. Uh, I have children in a age bracket where the Disney entertainment is by far the best. Uh, it's not It's not even close. Um, anything else... You have to watch very diligently to make sure the woke stuff doesn't go on the TV. Uh, and that's hard to do because they have so much woke stuff. But still, overall, they have almost no competition. Almost all other children's programming, with a couple minor exceptions, uh, is not as vast and it's not as intelligent. I mean, the, the alternatives to Disney are just dumb in many cases. So, But they do shameless child grooming at this point. And injecting the trans stuff um, into into the homes. Woke, woke, woke. Everything, every remake is woke. I was just thinking about yesterday. I had to remind a family member of why the live action Mulan cannot be shown in the Marlowe household. Because that was the one where Disney thanked the Xinjiang province where there is literally a genocide going on right now in China of the Uyghur Muslims. There's literally a genocide going on right now in this region. And Disney thanked it. Thanked it for, I guess, letting them facilitating the the live-action Mulan. Um, still, though, overall, if you're trying to put something on in front of, in front of the kids, it's got the most stuff, and still 7,000 layoffs. Shazam 2... It has been one of the biggest box office disasters in recent years. Shazam Fury of the Gods. It had a terrible opening and it fell off 80%. Um, the big marketing campaign is that this is a family movie. But as John Nolte writes, it is uh, injected a bunch of adult sexuality themes into it. Uh, it. It just, it had Shazam sidekick. Shazam is... I don't know, some guy who turns into a superhero. Uh, it comes out as a gay person, his sidekick, for no reason. Totally out of context. Uh, this, of course, was widely reported in places like Breitbart and elsewhere. And the movie does badly. And now the talk is that the issue is, I don't know, John Wick 4 came out and people were watching that. Um... It was poorly marketed. The Rock was supposed to do a cameo and wouldn't do it. Like That's what everyone's pointing to. It wasn't that the movie, which is supposed to be a family movie, just for no reason has a gay sidekick just to force that upon us because we have to constantly think about sexuality and people's uh, the, the, who people are attracted to sexually, no matter what is the context. No matter what we're doing, all the time, we can't have two and a half hours or an hour and a half, whatever is the length of the movie, away from that. We have to do it every second. This is why the movie industry, which used to be one of the biggest, most impressive industries in America, is, uh, it, it is just sad what's happened to it.
right, Paul Rowland is on with us, a.k.a. Paul Bois. He is a highly popular journalist for us at Breitbart News. As his day job, he is also a budding filmmaker, and he's made a really terrific movie called Exemplum, which I got a chance to see and really enjoyed. He tells us all about the movie, where you can get it. It is streaming now, the filmmaking process. He gives some analysis on the film business in general. It's a pretty compelling conversation. Let's hear it. Paul, good morning. Hello, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to talk to you. It's good to talk to you. So, uh, first of all, let's um, cut to the chase. The Where do people get it if they want to support you, a Breitbart writer and journalist who has made a highly entertaining pro-Christian movie that is worthy of your support? Uh, where do they go to get it? Uh, you can watch it for free on Tubi, uh, but I also recommend that you watch it on Vimeo On Demand, you can just rent it for a price of one ninety nine, and there you can watch it ad-free and get a high-quality streaming. Uh, the movie is meant to be just watched uh, contiguously without any ad breaks. Uh, so that would be the best place to watch it, but if you would prefer, you can also watch it for free on Tubi. Very cool, very cool. Okay, so tell me about the film and the process, and uh, the, the audience should hear the plot first, um, and the and, and at least the, the basics, because I think it'll be very appealing to them. Uh, but then I want to hear about your process, just the, the act of making a film just sounds so Herculean, um, and, and you did do it, and it's just an amazing thing, just to, an amazing accomplishment in its own right. Um, but tell us a little bit about the film itself. Thank you, Alex. So, yeah, I'll first describe the plot, and then I'll describe how I went about uh, constructing that plot, because it's a very interesting story. So the film is about a Catholic priest that, out of paranoia, he starts recording his confessions, and then he starts playing those recordings back and formulating psychological profiles about people. And in the process, he gets this idea to use those profiles and tell people about uh, these morality tales called exemplums and what exemplums are uh, in the middle ages uh, writers like Jeffrey Chaucer would create these morality tales that were always about people's foibles or sins and how it leads to their downfall and in the process this priest becomes a big internet star he gets his own show uh, he has a good Twitter following uh, and then through bureaucracy and corruption in the church, all of that gets wiped out. His internet show is canceled, his media presence is wiped out, and he's going to be sent to this dilapidated parish in the middle of nowhere. And so he suffers a crisis of faith, and he decides to take one of those recordings and blackmail a wealthy parishioner with it. And in the process, he gets linked up with a hacker and becomes this cat-and-mouse game that spirals out of control from there. So... My process is very interesting with this. I made the film for a budget of just $9,000. So when you're writing at that level, you pretty much have to construct your entire story around what you know you can get for free or relatively cheap. So when I sat down to write the script, I always had in the back of my mind a story about a priest that records his confessions. I didn't know where that would take me uh, and what kind of arc I would have, but I knew I had that story. And so I had to pair that around what I knew I could get for free. So I knew I could get at least two Catholic churches for free. I knew I could get a restaurant or a bar for free. And I knew I could shoot in apartments and do guerrilla style filmmaking on the streets. And so that's how it all blossomed from there. 
That's how I developed the idea of him recording confessions, playing them back, formulating psychological profiles. I had come from conservative and Catholic media. That's how the whole idea of his own internet show came about. And I had previously written a script about hacking and spying on people in the spiritual and philosophical dimensions of that. And there you had it. Exemplum was born. Yeah, very creative. And I think that a lot of people are savvy about using um, resources that they can get just just having a, just a set. And I know this with a lot of independent film that a lot of people write scripts just based around, well, we have access to this location and we can get it for free or for cheap. And we got to write a film uh, around that. It's literally I mean, that's how Hollywood works in a lot of ways, is that if you've such a great uh, uh, it's such a great place to shoot. Uh, a great location, as they call it, then that will literally th- th- that could drive the entire process right there. And you, you do some pretty uh, th- th- amazing visuals in the film. But Paul, tell me about the the plot itself. About how it is so timely because we were just talking about TikTok and how people going viral and people trying to be influencers online. It's a huge part of the culture, and there haven't been a ton of movies that have been made about influencers. I mean, this is not just about an influencer. It's about a Catholic influencer, which is a very, it's a, it is a unique concept. Yes. Yes, I do believe that the film is, and I did not send out to set out to do this. Not like when I was writing the script, I was like, oh, I want to create this story that sells this message. Uh, But as it was unfolding, I realized that the film was about, I believe, uh, philosophical and spiritual reflection about what I believe is modern cancel culture. And I don't use that in a political sense. I think conservatives and liberals like to bandy about that term and try to use it as a term of power, say, oh, I'm above cancel culture or I'm against cancel culture or I'm for cancel culture, when I think all of us – have the propensity inside of us to cancel an individual, to judge them uh, unfairly or cast them outside of a group. Uh, and his, the, what Father Colin Jacoby does essentially is he takes people's sins, their foibles, their darkness, and he keeps it all to himself and he locks it away and he uses it as a mechanism for power and control and popularity which I think so much of our culture and society has become today. It's people online, on Twitter, on TikTok, wherever, and everybody is collecting data about people and utilizing it against them uh, for power or popularity in some way. And nothing is about uniting people. Nothing is about healing. You know, Colin is supposed to be a spiritual healer. He's supposed to be absolving people of their sins. And instead he collects them and freezes them in time forever and uses it as a weight to hold around people's necks. Very interesting. And sometimes the best movies about faith are not uh, ones that are just simply a hundred percent positive. The crisis of faith movies are some of the most powerful of uh, the exorcist is the best example of this. It's all a crisis of faith movie and it's probably the most, you know, pro Catholic mainstream movie that there is, but it's all, uh, it, it is, uh, that's the nature of good storytelling. Um, I think, and I know you're a religious person. Um, did you, did you know that 
Did you have the, did you agree with me beforehand or is it just the plot sort of evolved organically um, as a crisis of faith movie? Uh, or did you know you were going to make something where faith was going to be challenged uh, and not just a blanket, all religion is good, faith is good, a, a sort of a black and white sort of thing like that? Well, that's a very good question. So I am an artist first. And, oh, I mean, I, um, my Catholicism obviously is a huge part of my identity, but when I'm coming to a piece of art, I'm creating it for art's sake. So that means I'm pulling, you know, the inner workings of my soul and my experiences and, and putting it out there and sharing it, crafting it through a story arc uh, and bringing it to people. So that's my primary motivation. And, of course, my Catholicism is very much informing that. Uh, I did not want to craft some message to try and say, well, religion is great or faith is great. It's, that's, I just feel like the, when an artist does that, I just feel that they're lying to people because the truth is, you know, faith is difficult and, you know, it's, it, there are challenges. There's, there's pain that you have. And uh, obviously I felt that pain. I think people out there have felt that pain as well. Uh, and I wanted that to be the driving force behind the story and then have, obviously, in the end, I do believe there is a powerful Christian message in there about forgiveness and mercy, uh, but that's all told uh, on through this uh, vehicle, which is basically a thriller, and is about a, in many ways, it, it's a film noir crime thriller first with a spiritual undertone. Yeah, that's right, and I like that. It's a, it's a great way of putting it, is that it's not a religious film first, it's a crime thriller first, and it's a religious film second, but it's not incidental. It's very thoughtful the way it's, it, it is dealt with. Again, uh, the movie's called Exemplum. The director is Paul Rowland, who is known to this audience as Paul Bois, one of our reporters at Breitbart News. He won the Best Feature Film Director Award at the Pasadena International Film Festival, which is quite an accomplishment for a first-time director. Uh, Paul, again, remind us where we can get the film. You can watch it for free on Tubi, or as I said, I prefer uh, Vimeo on demand for a rental price of one ninety nine. That way, you can watch it with no ad breaks and a high quality stream. Yeah, those are great, both great ways to watch films. Tubi does a, a pretty good job of curating stuff, and um, Vimeo another another good way because again, high quality. Good point. Um, I want to ask about the process of making a movie. How long does it take right now? How long does it take to make a movie start to finish when you feel like I've got an idea here? I'm I'm gonna I'm going to write a script and then I'm going to arrange for everything you need to arrange, cast it, shoot it, and then promote it. I mean, how long is the process? It must be years. Yeah, well, I mean, if you have studio backing, you can get a movie done in about two years uh, because you're highly funded and highly resourced. Uh, but for me, myself, this took, if you include the time that I was gathering funds for this, uh, to when I finally finished it, about three and a half years. Which, honestly, at my level, that's actually a very good turnaround. I know people who created films you know, in 2012, and they just didn't start releasing them until now. Uh, so, yeah, it's a, for me, it was about three and a half years. I had initially started gathering the funds uh, for trying to create a short film, and in the process, I realized I wanted to create a feature film, uh, a low-budget feature film, because I admired the... 1990s independent filmmakers so much people like Christopher Nolan, Robert Rodriguez, Darren Aronofsky, and I wanted to follow in their footsteps. That's a lot of the reason why this movie is in black and white. 
and why I put in the eight millimeter film grains and drain the whites and the highlights. I wanted to appear as if we grabbed a 16 millimeter black and white camera and went out and shot a feature film. Uh, I, uh, and I want to give a shout out right now to the David Horowitz Freedom Center, Mike Finch, the president. Uh, they're the ones who gave me the initial $6,000 to create this film. And then I was able to pick up some more funds from Seth Dillon, uh, CEO of the Babylon Bee, and another friend of mine who also contributed to the film. And so after I got those funds, I wrote the script. I, uh, I started uh, gathering props, buying it off of Amazon throughout the summer of 2020. And then we started shooting in the fall of 2020. It was about seven weekends. And we started on a hot September night, and we finished on the weekend before Thanksgiving. And then I edited the film throughout 2021 uh, after the birth of my daughter, so I got absolutely no sleep. And uh, then it was the film festival circuit, and here we are. Now it's released. Wow. And uh, it's it, it feels like the, the process it just seems like it just it, – it's such a big bet. But it feels – do you feel very satisfied that you – accomplished it because um I, i'm from hollywood as everyone in the audience knows i mention it pretty much on a daily basis and so many people talk a big game about making movies and love of movies but then they don't make one everyone can be a filmmaker and i think any uh whatever is your favorite filmmaker there's a very good chance they weren't groomed by some corporation that they were someone who just went out and shot stuff and they couldn't stop shooting stuff and they were the kid who always had a camera rolling or they were someone who worked in a video store it's those are the type of people who turn out to be some of the best filmmakers is is that um what did you know that you thought that i'm gonna do this i'm gonna make i'm gonna make movies well, I've been pursuing filmmaking since high school. I was very fortunate. And you were there at my premiere. I had a wonderful teacher, and I gave him a shout-out. Uh, at my premiere, I had him stand up, and everybody gave him a round of applause. Uh, at the age of 15, I was being shown the works of F.W. Murnau, uh, Fritz Lang, Ingmar Bergman, uh, and that really informed my storytelling uh, capabilities from an early age. I made my first short film then. And then in college, college was a kind of a rough time as I was trying to figure things out as an artist, but I did pursue screenwriting uh, part-time. And then I pursued screenwriting full-time after I graduated. And since then, my, my work as a filmmaker has been developed in, in script writing. I had written seven scripts before this. And uh, it took me a while to come to the conclusion that I was going to make my own feature film for, for a low budget. Uh, I had debated, you know, whether or not I wanted to make short films and go the traditional route, but I knew that it had to be a feature film, and uh, and I'm very proud that I, I, I went that uh, path. It was an extremely difficult and challenging and painful path, but I think that if, if filmmakers want to demonstrate what they can do, you have to you have to go that route. You have to make that feature film because. Uh, unfortunately, a short film does not uh, tell anybody about your ability to hold a narrative for 90 plus minutes. Did you feel like there could be a revival, though, of feature of, of short films? Because I feel like with people's attention spans, uh, I, I watched the, the last two movies I watched, I feel like would have been much better as shorts. I, I felt like that there was a great 30 to 50 minutes in there and then they just. They just kept going and it was, or is there just no market for that? It's just totally, just no one cares about that sort of, sort of thing. Well, we definitely have a glut, I would say, of feature films in this digital age of ours that really have no business being feature films. 
uh, and that's just the the nature of the, the technology that we're living in. Uh, you know, we're not living in the age of film anymore, where I think only like the cream of the crop is making films, and anybody can make a film. So that just you know, there's just going to be a glut, and so you know, the truly great filmmakers are going to have to just persist and and forge through that and you know in this age of democratization hope they can generate a large enough audience that's going to reward them for their hard work um i do i you know i do not want to see cinema uh destroyed and you know go the way to you know short form videos uh on youtube or god forbid tiktok you know i i'm a lover of cinema i i think cinema is the greatest uh dramatic art form ever invented i don't want to see it destroyed by tv serials uh or short videos uh and we need to empower uh, true auteurs that want to create uh, works that are going to inspire audiences and bring them together and give them a universal experiences you know in many ways uh, you know to, to go into the culture war uh scenarios here you know the the left really unfortunately started utilizing culture for political gain. Uh, and that's really sad. And then yeah. I feel like some of the right's response has been to uh, utilize culture for, for powerful gain. And that's not helpful either. Sure, like, sure. Or, or to punch out, which is, which is clearly not working for us. The punching out is not working. And that's where uh, it is very, very good when people are uh, starting their careers in the arts, which you're doing. Paul Rowland, a.k.a. Paul Bois, Breitbart journalist and director of the film Exemplum, which you can get on Tubi, also on Vimeo. You can follow him at, at P. Rowland Films. Paul, congrats on this. Great stuff. And I uh, will check back in with you. Thank you so much, Alex. My full endorsement. It's a very good movie, and all of you should watch it. I'm American made. I got American parts. That's today's show. As always, thanks to Zach Jones for putting it together and Robert Marlowe for helping me pick topics and all of you who stick with us and tell 10,000 friends and family members. Can't thank you enough. Going to Breitbart.com, sharing our content on the social web is another great way to help us out. We'll talk to you tomorrow.